the words of the living God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for... Uh, gathering us together to hear your word, to be instructed by you. As I said before, help me get out of the way so that the people might hear from you, that you would speak loudly, that you would speak clearly to our hearts, that you would give us eyes and ears to discern what you are saying, and that you would free us from distraction. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a lot of talk today in the world about being relevant. Have you heard this? The importance of being relevant, you know, being cool, keeping up with the latest trends, making sure that you've got the newest gadget, the most up-to-date news, the most popular political opinion. You know, It's all about the new diet, the new music, the new fashion, the new fad, the new slang, the new style, the new swag, the, the newest Facebook post or the newest Twitter post. You know, they actually have a setting there on Twitter where you can follow what's trending, right? You can follow what people are talking about the most. And I think that we get this mentality in the church, too, where we want to be uh, relevant. We want to make sure that we are relevant to the culture out there. <clears throat> and friends, today we are going to talk about an ancient truth, but it's one that is unchanging and eternally relevant. Eternally relevant. And friends, let me tell you, if we biff it up, we will become irrelevant forever. Who is Jesus? What do you say about him? What do you do with his claims? The way that you handle these questions have eternal implications. Implications that won't change. Implications that will always be relevant. Implications that change the course of history for everyone and everything. So Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And because of that, there are two things that we need to get. Okay, So two things today. Number one, because Jesus is the Christ, what we say and believe about him matters. Okay? Because Jesus is the Christ, what we say and believe about him matters. That's number one. Number two, because Jesus is the Christ, the church's true testimony about Christ changes everything. Because he is the Christ, the church's true testimony about Christ changes everything. Everything. So we see that first point, because Jesus is the Christ, what we say and believe about him matters in verses 13 through 17, but we're going to start back first in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 we read, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Okay, so Jesus has continued to do his ministry round about Jerusalem, and now he enters into the region of Caesarea Philippi. And 
Throughout Jesus' entire ministry, there's sort of this looming question on the horizon. Who is Jesus? Who is this man that says the kingdom of heaven is at hand and who comes and speaks boldly and with authority, who casts out devils and heals the sick and delivers the lame? Who is he? What is he? What does he represent? Up until this point, the disciples have not given a clear definitive declaration about who Jesus is, nor has Jesus given a definitive statement about who he is, although everything he's been doing has been pointing in only one direction. So it's time to bring things into laser focus, as it were. The thing that Jesus is inquiring about here matters the most. It matters more than anything else in the world. Who do you say the Son of Man is? Who do you say the Son of Man is? And the way that you answer that question changes everything. So who do people say the Son of Man is? In Jesus' day, there were a couple of different answers to that question. Some said Elijah, some said John the Baptist, some said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And we know that there is a connection between Elijah and John the Baptist from our first sermon in the Gospels. We said that John the Baptist comes to fulfill the role of Elijah, who was the forerunner, the one who came to prepare the way for God to bring judgment and salvation to his people. But uh, Jeremiah is uh, uh, sort of different, but not really. I think he's connected too. Jeremiah is a prophet from the Old Testament who prophesies... um, the coming destruction of the temple and the judgment on Jerusalem. He's known as the prophet of doom. And interestingly enough, Jesus spends a lot of time in his ministry uh, talking about the judgment on the, um, the hypocritical and false leadership of the day and the, uh, the imminent destruction of its system. So there's really a connection between all of these people, John the Baptist, um, Elijah, Jeremiah, the prophets, all of them, Uh, were those who prepared the way for God to bring judgment and salvation to his people Israel. Now, these answers that the crowd are giving are good, but they miss the mark in one really big, huge, important, and fundamental way, and and that is that Jesus is not just the one who prepares the way. Okay, He is the way. Right? He is not just the herald of the message. He's the one that the message has been about all along. Right? He's not just some a great innovator. He is the answer. And he doesn't just have some true things to say. He's the truth. He's not just a way to salvation. Jesus is uh, our salvation. So, The crowds have some good answers, but they're a bit off target. So he says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Look at verses 15 through 17. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, at this question, Jesus is being more direct. He is asking a a much more probing 
question, and he is asking a question uh, for, um, for whom the answer... Uh, he's asking a question to a group of people for whom the answer to this question is much more critical. Who do you say that I am? That is, who do the disciples say that he is? Who do the followers of Jesus say that he is? And the way that this sentence is constructed in the Greek, the emphasis is being placed on the you. There's a hard emphasis on the you. Who do you say that I am? That is the quintessential question for the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is upon this question that the salvation of every individual hangs. Well, what is Simon Peter's response? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, something to keep in mind here when we hear Peter's, when we see Peter's answer here is that Jesus has addressed this question to all of the disciples, but Simon Peter has piped up, as is typical of him in the gospel, and he sort of answers for everybody, we could say. Um, it would be as if I were to ask everybody here in this room a question today, and you guys were all to gather together in a huddle, and one of you were to stand up and answer for the group. Peter's answer is the answer of every true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the voice of the church, as it were, in this instance. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, what is Peter getting at when he calls Jesus the Christ? <clears throat> the word Christ means uh, the anointed one. And um, what does it mean to anoint? Well, in the Old Testament, the way that they anointed people is with oil, and they would ordain them into formal office, like the guys did back in May when they came and ordained me here into the gospel ministry. But they did that by laying on of hands. In the Old Testament, they did that with oil. And in the Old Testament, there were three different kinds of people that were anointed, prophets, priests, and kings. And uh, what Peter is... Uh, saying here is that uh, Jesus is all of these things. I think uh, uh, Peter and the Twelve are mostly focusing on the the emphasis of Christ's kingship when they think of the Messiah, right? They're looking for someone to come and to deliver them from all of their Roman oppression, someone to come in riding on the uh, white horse and and save them, as it were. Um. But Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of these things. He is the great king. He is the high priest. He is the prophet who was to come. And in the person of Jesus Christ, everything in the Old Testament, everything that the Old Testament is pointing forward to, it is summed up. Uh, throughout God's history, God used prophets, priests, and, and kings to, um, to mediate between himself and the people. Uh, the kings were the ones who delivered the people on behalf of God, and the priests were the ones who brought the people back into relationship with God, and the prophets were sort of uh, symbols of hope in a time of seeming hopelessness. And here, with Peter's statement, we see that Christ is the ultimate realization of all of those things. He is the anointed one. He is the thing that they have been pointing to all along. And that is what Peter's statement about Christ being the Son of God points to, is his uniqueness. He is the unique one. He's the one who's sent from God. He's the one who has come to deliver his people once and for all. So Peter's testimony is the testimony of every Christian. And look at how Jesus responds to Peter's testimony. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And as we said a couple weeks ago, many people see Jesus and they hear Jesus, but they do not see Jesus for who he is and all that he has to offer. In order for that to happen, it takes a supernatural work of God's grace in somebody's heart. And that is exactly what we see here, right? Jesus says, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So the world has many things to say about Jesus, but this is what the church says about Jesus. Every true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ says this about him uh, by God's grace. It's no different in the day in which we are living, friends. People are still saying things about Jesus today. Uh, What are some of the things that the world is saying about Jesus? What are the crowds saying about Jesus today? If we were to take a microphone out of here right now and stick it in front of people, what are some of the things that we would hear people say? Well, I I think that you would find that people either go from one extreme, they go from one extreme or to the other. They go from either one or the other with Jesus. Uh, He is either a good person, you know, a, a good moral teacher, or he's a bloodthirsty homophobe, right? He's one or the other. He's this mean, nasty, arrogant uh, guy, or he's the granddaddy in the sky who sort of gives you everything that you want, puts you up on, your, on his lap and, and, and satisfies your every uh, desire. Another one that's popular today is this sort of effeminate, uh, passive Jesus, you know, the, the strong European one, you know the one I'm talking about? He's got the long, flowing blonde hair with the product, in it and, and the blue eyes. And, and he's real sensitive, you know. He goes around making sure everybody has their safe space. And he's, he doesn't, he's very quick not to say a harsh, judgmental word to anybody. Very loving. He, he pets little baby lambs. He drinks triple shot venti, half, swat, half sweet, non fat caramel macchiatos. I had to write that one down. So it's that Jesus, or it's this sort of harsh dictator view of Jesus, right? Where he's just totalitarian, he's rude, he's a bigot, um, he's a male chauvinist and a hater and all the rest. <clears throat> so it's one, one extreme or the other. Uh, there's also this, univer- this universalistic view of Jesus that is big today, that Jesus is not judgmental at all. He would never pronounce a condemnation on anybody. Nobody is going to hell. Everybody is going to be saved in the end. That is another popular uh, view of Jesus. But the church must have a, a much more balanced view of Jesus. This is to say we must have a biblical view of Jesus. Uh, the, the Bible presents Jesus as the lion and the lamb. Okay, He is the sacrificial victim, but he is also the conquering king. Right? He is the Messiah. He is the Savior, but he is also the judge of all the world. Uh, he pronounces condemnation on evil, but yet he rewards righteousness and justice. Uh, he exemplifies a biblical view of masculinity. Jesus holds people accountable for their sins. He holds people responsible for what they do, but yet he lays down his life for uh, the church. <clears throat> He's all the things uh, that we've, we've mentioned thus far. He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's the king. He's the word of the prophets. He's the one that the prophets were speaking about. He is the word of God, became, become flesh. Uh, he is 
the ultimate high priest. He is the one who reconciles, uh, who um, offers up a sacrifice on behalf of all the nations, and it is through him that when people come to God through him that they are perfected. He saves them perfectly and completely. Uh, he is the greater king who saves his people uh, from every enemy that they will ever face, including death and hell. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we've seen that because Jesus is the Christ, what we say about him matters. We must have a biblical view of Jesus. We must hold everything together that the Bible says to us about Jesus, and we must say only those things. We cannot go beyond what is written. We cannot make up a Jesus in our own mind. So what we say about Jesus, what we believe about Jesus, really matters. It determines our eternal destiny. Do you know him? Do you rightly know him? That is the question. So we've seen that point. Moving on, second point, because Jesus is the Christ, the church's true testimony about Christ changes everything. Because Jesus is the Christ, the church's true testimony about Christ changes everything. See that in verses 18 through 20. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, there has been this considerable debate over the first part of this passage through the years, and the question has to do with who or what the rock is that Jesus builds his church on. What is the rock that Jesus is referring to here? There are some who would say that it is Peter. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church would say that it is Peter, And from that, they would say that he's the first pope, and then every subsequent pope sort of fills that same office. They are the rock. The pope is the rock of the church, which we would reject. Others uh, will say uh, that he's talking specifically here about uh, Peter in the twelve. In other words, he's only talking about the apostles here. They are the rock upon which the church is built. Or it is the apostolic teaching of Peter and the rest of the apostles upon which Christ will build his church. And I believe it's a combination of the last two. It is Peter and his true testimony. It is Peter and his uh, true testimony. And um, in this analogy, if you look at it, Jesus is the builder, right? Jesus is the one building, and he's building his church on the rock, on the foundation that he mentions. And Peter and his testimony is that rock. Uh, But it's not only Peter who has this testimony. Uh, Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. That is their teaching. So the church is built on apostolic teaching and preaching. Uh, In other words, as, as long as the church preaches the truth about Jesus Christ as it is first delineated here uh, by Jesus, or excuse me, by Peter, the true church will continue to be built. Now, you think about it, there's a possibility that the church can go astray, right? Sometimes the church goes astray and you have unordained men, or excuse me, you have ordained men who say things that are untrue about Jesus. And in that case, you don't have a foundation upon which Jesus can build the church because you don't have a a true testimony about who he is. So you must have both. You must have the man, you must have an ordained man, and you must have the true testimony. They both have to be 
uh, in conjunction with one another. Therefore, the rock upon which Christ builds his church is the apostles along with their successors and their teaching. The rock is the apostles along with their successors and their teaching. Paul tells us also in Ephesians that when Christ ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Some to be apostles, some to be preachers, some to be teachers, some to be evangelists. These are the gifts that Jesus has given to the church. And um, it is when we have a true testimony about who Jesus is, when the church truly testifies, when they confess Christ as he is, that Christ builds his church on that. So you must have both. Next, there are two things that necessarily happens when the church is true to this testimony. The gates of hell... Do not prevail against it, number one. And what the church binds on earth is bound in heaven. You see that in the text, right? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, referring to the church. Let's read it again. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, throughout Scripture, well, first of all, we have the two points. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and whatever the church binds on earth is bound in heaven. So first, the gates of hell do not prevail against it. When you look at the gates of hell uh, in Scripture, they refer to the place of the dead, uh, the place of death or the abode of the dead. Therefore, Jesus is saying that the, um, that the church uh, will not be conquered by death. The church, uh, death will have no power over uh, the church. Ultimately, the church will... Uh, prevail. Okay? God has established one thing in history that's for certain, and that is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at human history on a broad scale, you will see that um, throughout history, pagan nations continue to rise up and rebel against God, and then God smashes them to pieces, and when the dust settles, the church remains. This is the way it's always been. It's the way that it will always be, because Christ has established uh, the church. <clears throat> Uh, the kingdoms of this world are constantly shaken up and removed, but the church uh, remains. The death of Jesus Christ has established the church forever. Uh, forever. Christ died, but then he conquered death, and all, ho- all those who believe the message do the same. All the power of death and hell cannot stop us. So that is first. The gates of hell do not prevail against the church. The church will prevail. Okay. Uh, second, and this implication is connected to the first, What the church binds on earth is bound in heaven. Throughout human history, the church makes certain declarations over peoples and cities and nations, and those declarations are binding. Okay, The church makes these declarations, they are binding. The true church has been given the keys of the kingdom. That is, the church has been given the authority to declare whether people are under the blessing or cursing of God, whether they are under the blessing of his salvation or the curse of his condemnation. And how does the church determine this? How does the church determine whether somebody's under the blessing or under the condemnation? Well, by virtue of their response uh, to the gospel. When, when men and women in a city or in a nation outright reject the truth of the gospel, the church can declare that that person is outside of the kingdom and God honors it in heaven, as long as our proclamation is in step with the truth of the gospel. Further, excuse me, if the church binds discipline on a man or woman, that is, the church goes through the process 
as it is given to us in Matthew chapter 18, as Kirk read for us this morning. And at the end of that whole process, the person does not repent, and the church binds discipline on that person. The church closes the door and locks it, as it were, with the kings, uh, the keys of the kingdom. That person is outside of the kingdom, and God honors it in heaven. So if the church rightly follows Scripture in this process and declares that somebody is outside of the kingdom, it is, a, it is as if God himself has said it from heaven. Um, and you, and you see there that passage Kirk read this morning that all of the, the rest of the apostles are given the authority to bind things on earth. They are given the keys. You know? So it, it continues. And as I have said, if the church, if you have a person who is uh, ordained and truly preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have leadership in the church and they bind discipline on somebody, God honors that in heaven. Okay? He honors it because they've done it according to the way that he has told them to do it. Okay? So, again, the church has authority over life and death. Uh, the things that hold men captive in the realm of the dead, sin, death, and the devil, uh, are all overcome as the church advances in the world through the proclamation of the gospel. <clears throat> Now, what are some of the implications today of the fact that the church cannot be stopped, that the church remains forever? Well, I think this is uh, pretty obvious, but it's really important for us to get and to remember, and it's simple. It's as simple as this. Jesus wins. All right? That is the implication. Jesus wins in history. Jesus will have ultimate victory in the world. If the kingdom of Christ cannot be shaken, if it is the one thing that has been established forever, it cannot be removed, it cannot overcome, then by necessity it must conquer. By necessity it must conquer. And by golly, that is what the Bible teaches. <laughs> uh, the, the passage in the New Testament that is quoted more than any other from the Old is Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Essentially what it says, okay? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Jesus is now, presently, seated at the right hand of God, and all things are being brought into subjection to him. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And he will sit there until he does just that. So the first implication is that um, there will, uh, he will have victory in the world. Jesus wins. And how does Christ exercise his reign in the world? Well, we've just talked about it, right? Through the church, through us. You know, you know what that means for us, friends? The devil does not win. The devil doesn't win. It's as the hymn writer says, no power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Right? And for our purposes today, no power of hell or scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. Church, because of this, you can know that there is no bondage that is so deep that you cannot get out. You hear what I'm saying? There, there is no bondage that is so deep that you cannot get out. I don't care what it is, Christ will break the bonds. Are you, are you bound uh, by your lust? Do the, do the lust of this world consume you? Do they drive you? Do they control your life? Take heart. In Jesus Christ, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. There is 
grace from Christ that can liberate you from the deepest bondage. Are you, are you bound by other things? We've said lust. Are you bound in, bound up in smoking and in drinking and in pornography? Or is it, is it shopping or is it gambling? It does not matter what it is. In Christ, these things will not get the best of us because the kingdom, um, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. <clears throat> Do you have a distorted self-image? Have you, have you created an image for yourself that you're constantly trying to live up to that's unrealistic? It's not who you are. You're constantly trying to live up to it, and you're constantly failing, and you're too prideful to let it go. In Christ, you can be set free from these things. There is grace in Christ to liberate you from these things. The gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Moreover, this extends to others around us. Uh, There is hope for that person in your life for whom it seems there is no hope. Um, That person who lives the most wretched and defiled and depraved and unhappy life, the person about whom people say constantly they will never change, they will never turn around, there is hope for that person because the gates of hell will not prevail against us. So you can't ever say anybody is hopeless, friends. In Christ, God takes dead men and he brings them to life. He brings dead people to life, okay? So nobody is hopeless, and we need to remember that. But we must remember that this is all dependent upon the church continuing to preach true apostolic doctrine and continuing to exercise true biblical authority in the world. What are some of the things that we will end up with instead if the church doesn't do these things? Well, it, it won't be the church, I can tell you that. Uh, you'll, you'll end up with a, a social club or something like this, a, a, a hangout for the heathen, a place for the wicked to gather together and to spread their wickedness. The Bible calls them synagogues of Satan. So you, you don't have a church uh, in that instance. If we do not preach and uphold true apostolic doctrine, Christ will come, according to the book of Revelation, and snatch our candlestick. That is, he will snatch the life right out of us. There will be no hope. There will be no forgiveness. There will be no deliverance. There will be no salvation, only death. And everything will come to nothing. All of our labors, all the work that we do in our lives and in the church and in the community come to nothing if we do not preach true apostolic doctrine. Doctrine. And when I say apostolic, by the way, we're not talking about our friends down the road. Um, we, are, we are saying the, the doctrine of the apostles, as it is taught in Holy Scripture. The apostles and their traveling companions who wrote the New Testament. That is what we're saying. Okay? True apostolic doctrine. <clears throat> um, if the leaders in this church, this is another implication, if the leaders in this church do not exercise discipline positively and negatively. And I think we always think about the bad whenever we hear discipline, but there's also positive implications. There's positive and negative implications of discipline. For instance, the oversight of the church and the shepherding of its souls, the elders are in charge of that, which includes dealing with sin whenever it comes up. You know what happens when you don't deal with sin in a church, right? It's, it's like a cancer, right? If you don't nip it in the bud, you cut that thing out, it spreads throughout and corrupts the whole. And so it has to be, it has to be dealt with. Uh, could you imagine what it would be like if 
uh, these people who go church hopping from one church to the next and go into congregations and try to take advantage of those individuals within. Uh, They try to exploit them if the elders, if the leadership of the church did nothing about it when these people came in. Could you imagine what the church would be like then? Could you imagine what it would be like if you had um, people in the church who were preaching heresy constantly, and we just allowed them to continue to go on unbridled, preaching their heresies, teaching them to the kids and everything else? Why? Well, because they, they drop a big collection in the offering plate every time it goes by. We don't discipline them. That can be destructive to a church. So discipline is always good. It is always for the health and well-being of the church, right? So, we have seen that what we do with Christ matters. What you believe about Jesus changes everything. Uh, The world says all sorts of things about Jesus today, if you are listening, but we must be careful to say only what the Bible says about him. Our testimony about Jesus, our belief about Jesus, determines our eternal destiny. We must have a proper testimony about Christ, a right testimony about Christ. We must truly confess him. We must think biblically about him. Our confession about him must be true. Moreover, it is through the church that Christ is exercising his rule in the world, and so the doctrine of Christ that we preach matters. And the way that we go about exercising the authority that Christ gives to us changes everything. If we do not preach true apostolic doctrine, if we don't preach the Bible, we're not faithful to the Scriptures, if we do not exercise discipline rightly and exercise the authority that Christ has given us in the church and exercise it rightly in the way that he has told us to do so, we will ultimately be brought to nothing. We become irrelevant forever, eternally irrelevant Therefore, we must continue to preach the truth. We must maintain our integrity. And when we do, nothing will be able to stop us. All the power of hell and death cannot stop the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the power of hell and death cannot stop you, believer. A lot of talk in the world about staying relevant today, but none of it matters if we miss this. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is building His church, and He is building it based on His truth. So let us always keep in step with His truth.